Good morning, everyone. I don't mean to carry too many books here, but I did have some that I might want to use a little bit out of. <laughs> uh, the best book of all. <laughs> um, today's topic for the sermon is how to visualize the true church. Sometimes we talk about the home church or the building or the uh, situations of, of how to make a church function. Uh, there'll be a little bit of that here, I guess, as well. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to jump right into it because I know I'm going to need the time. And I'm going to be using Webster's here in a little bit, a couple of papers in there. But I think I'll just set it down here for the time being. And uh, I want you to go with me to Colossians. I put a lot of little papers in here so that I could go fairly fast, especially as soon as the papers begin to get get less. <laughs> um, but Colossians, Colossians, there we go. Uh, Colossians chapter one, and then I want to read. Uh, verse 13 down to 20. That's seven verses, which might seem a little on the long side, but um, it's going to show the, the points that we need. And uh, that's going to be the important part of it. Or I can talk my way through, which I like to do as well. So begin with me in uh, verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? Who hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. This Sometimes you run into words in the strangest places. Here's this word translate. In the entire Bible, it's three places. Hmm? Sorry? Oh, uh, this is Colossians. Chapter 1 and verse 13 through 20. Okay, um, this word translate in verse 13 uh, is the same word that's used when uh, Enoch vanished from wherever he was or where he went, what he did. And it's in the New Testament in the um, uh, book of, uh, of Hebrews, which tells about Enoch. And um, so that's, it's an interesting word. It's something we uh, have to be mindful of that sometimes certain words from the other languages don't have an equivalent to match in the King James or our English. So this word translate. There's another place in, in well, actually I wrote in my Bible just so that I'd remember, transfer is a good equivalent, transfer. So that's not saying vanished. <laughs> Transferred is an interesting word. It's also when Jesus said, uh, if you want to pray and move this mountain, move, remove this mountain. The same word, translate. You can move this mountain or change this mountain to a different location. So uh, that I thought was very interesting. That's why I had the, the, uh, the uh, dictionary along as well as this other book along because it tells where the word came from and how it's translated into our King James English. 
we know we're always careful to say don't build a doctrine on one verse or two. <laughs> you want a number of verses uh, to be able to, to, um, to get the point across and show that there's continuity in the scriptures as you're translating uh, from one language to another language. Uh, this um, this book is uh, the is called the Englishman's Greek Concordance. So what you can do is go in the back and look up the Greek word or the English word with the Greek word with it. It gives you a page number, and then you're on your own. Well, not too badly though. When you go to that page, you know it's got to be on that page. So you kind of look at the spelling, but also you look at how the other verses were translated into the English. And when you do that, you find out there's no problem in using this text as a help. Because uh, it won't tell you what it means, it'll show you what it means. So you'll have three or four verses, or more, with an idea that came out of that word. And you say, ah, okay, I got it. <laughs> Didn't have to be told, I got it. <laughs> okay. So it's it's a good, a good reference for, uh, for looking up these verses. Now... Uh, I'm just going to check. Oh, yes, here it is. Um, the word translate, and it gives you the Hebrew word, uh, pardon me, the Greek word, and then it gives you three places to look up on page uh, 477, page 489, page uh, 487, and that's it. Don't think we want to build a doctrine on it. <laughs> okay. It's just a, a way uh, the word switched in, uh, in how it's used, how we can use it. For uh, translate is a good word. When you make a translation of the Bible, you're moving this thought from that place to this place. And it's not that somebody vanished and went away somewhere. That's a different idea. And the Hebrew is the same way. I've got one called the uh, Englishman's Hebrew Concordance. It's a little more awkward. <laughs> uh, okay. So I wanted to mention that that's available and I can talk with somebody about it if you'd like. But going on with this idea about the church and the true church, we want to look at certain things as I'm going on down. We want to be Christ-centered because we know that Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone, and, and so on. So we'll bump into some of those verses as we go. The nature um, of the church should be, first off, holy. It should be regarding spiritual matters. It should be helping spiritual things to happen, to be holy. That's what Webster says, too. Uh, I'll get, to that, get back to that. It's universal in scope. Uh, some go a little different direction on that. What I'm thinking of universal is that it's for all countries. It's supposed to go to all peoples. Go to this place first, and that place second, and that one, and then all the world. Go to the whole world, carrying the gospel. So it's for every nation. It used to be that there was about a hundred countries identified. Now what is there? <laughs> I know that a lot of smaller countries rose up under their own power with their own identification and so on. There's, there's pretty well 200, I think, now of countries. And we should go to all of them. If you look at where the Bible has been translated into various languages and dialects, it's pretty surprising how many dialects also. 
So the Bible needs to go to all those places. We need to teach that way. Um, a revived in spirit. We need to be having a revival. Change our ways of doing things. Get uplifted in spirit. And so that we can driving force, we can get out and do. I'll get back to that. Um, consistent in character. The church has to have a plan and be consistent about how they handle things, what's the appropriate way of handling things, um, and how we view Christ in all of that. We'll, we'll get back to that as well. Ephesians is going to really help us out here this morning. Uh, and then lastly, how we view the end of the world and uh, when heaven rolls back and the clouds break and Christ is going to come through. Or is he going to be sitting in a cloud as he was seen leaving? <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, so we'll get a few thoughts on that as well as we go. So back to uh, uh, Christ being the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. It's real close here, but this will be. Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, and I put my black string in here so that I'd be a ribbon. So that I'd be coming back to it. So you might want to put something in there that'll bring you back to it too. Chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, I want to read uh, verse 23. Now this might break up a little. I won't be in the normal fashion of run through the verses. And it's got a dual meaning. So you have to watch for that as well. So first it starts off in verse 23. For the husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife. Think, okay, we're in a different subject here, aren't we? Yeah, we are. <laughs> okay, so the rest of the verse. Even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So the church is called a body. The members, you'd have to look at another place, another scriptures about it, but the body's members the hands, feet, eyes, and so on, uh, are members of this body of Christ. And no one member can say to another, you're not needed. That's another scripture, right? Interesting how these sometimes connect and you want to say, oh, let's talk about that. And then you realize that it could draw you away from what you're meant to be doing. Okay. So um, this tells us, though, that Christ is the head of the church and that we should watch for his leadership in everything we do and uh, not become um, self-centered to the point of some individual being the ruling power over a, a great number of people and that's that's really not right. Uh, it shouldn't be that way. You'd have to look at Jesus' examples and his story to his own disciples when he said, don't you try to do this. You know, you, If you want to be the head of something, you be the servant and so on. It's Quite an interesting way Jesus put things. And, and it's not the programs that a church is centered around. It should be uh, not that way that it's social stuff or financial stuff. Um, Jesus is the head and, we, and the foundation of the church, the cornerstone, as I said already. Um, we sent uh, two members of our body here to a conference on how to build our own church and to uh, 
uh, find out how you do with the IRS, how you do this, how do you have bylaws, what are in them, how do you have your own staff members, how do you uh, arrange for other people to become pastors and licensed ministers, and a whole chain of events that need to be answered. And you might as well do it when you're starting. The two that went came back sad because the majority of the discussion was how to make your own money out of being in church. <laughs> uh, they called it the, um, I wrote it down here, um, the arm, what was it called? Yeah, a not-for-profit or for-profit arm of the church. You're supposed to be a non-profit organization as a church. But they had a whole section of teaching and really wrapped into lots of it on for-profit arm of the church. Wow, that's a little different. I don't think Jesus really wanted that to happen. And sell coffee during service and collect money for it. Uh, this isn't really what the church is all about or what church should be about. It's not the financial side of it. Uh, we can remember that the church is very needing to be spiritual and our job is saving souls. So I wrote in Matthew 10, turn with me in Matthew 10, and verse, uh, verse 28, 10, 28. And fear not them which can... Uh, which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Some people um, seemingly want to stress too much on soul and on uh, the individual's body rather than the group effort. So that's why I put this verse in, that we don't fear the people that would be involved in uh, their action, but rather we're wanting to find those souls and save them. Sometimes the word soul gets uh, in trouble, if I can say that way, as to the meaning of the word soul. And that's a whole different study. But we, when God uh, built us out of the soils of the ground, out of the chemicals of the ground, and he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, so you got soil, breath of life, and then it says man became a living soul. That's where the three is. If you take away, well, if you take away these two, what happens to the soul? <laughs> okay. Um, so somebody came up with a, a discussion on that, and then you find out fish have souls, and animals have souls, and birds have souls, and it gets all tangled up with what some churches would teach as truths. So that brings me to another topic of the holy nature of the church as a function. In Ephesians 5.26, if you want to turn there, or I've got part of it here, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. That's what Jesus is going to do, sanctify it and cleanse it. That begins to get you going with other verses. Uh, Webster's, again, would say that it's for um, sanctifying and uh, setting aside, purifying, uh, that you're doing for making it holy. But in Matthew 5, 48, interesting. Turn with me to Matthew 5 and verse 48. It's near where we were just a moment ago. 
Matthew 5 and 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Whoa, that means there's got to be some structure, some rules to the game, you might say. Colossians 1.28 says pretty well the same thing, be perfect. And in James, um, James uh, 1 verse 4, and also in chapter 3 verse 2, these verses you might want to write down and take home and look them up. It's on the same idea of what you should do to be perfect. And we say, well, man can never be perfect. Uh, don't go there. Because there's a few people in the scripture, a man after God's own heart, I guess he's perfect. And he made mistakes. So, you know, we need to figure out what this all means. That if we're not trying to be perfect, not trying to do anything, that's what we're going to end up with, is nothing. We need to strive to be perfect, to follow God's ways and God's rules and laws, statutes, standards, uh, so that we can know that we're right. Uh, When Paul was finishing his life, he said, I've done it. And I did it right. And henceforth, it saved up for me a crown of righteousness. Um, we, we need to have that positive attitude and a way of doing it. Is that where we go to church to get that? I sure found it as a young person. That's what we talked about at church, how to do well at whatever age we were at growing up in the church, that we should have a way of knowing when we're doing right and that we should be hallowed unto God not the building so much as, as the individuals. Um, we should be, uh, I find the right place here. The purpose, well, I wrote in here about Dover Camp because I, I right away thought about that building. In the old building, it was called a chapel. And there was a little bit of difficulty as to what you could do in the building. Could you slide the tables aside or the pews aside and play volleyball or basketball or something in, in that building? And, or is it always sacred buildings? We used to, uh, when I was young, when a new church was built, they would have a dedication service for the building. And it was like making that building holy. Then afterwards you get to thinking about it. You know, the only time the Holy Spirit is there is when we are here. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything for the building. It does it for the hearts of people. Teaching us, training us. So the building is not holy. What happens if you had to sell it sometime? By IRS, you have to sell it to another non-profit organization. But what if there isn't one? So you sell it. Where's that money got to go? Well, IRS says you better plan ahead because it's supposed to go again to another nonprofit organization. So we've done that in our bylaws. So we're thinking ahead. But it, and if this building then turned into some awful situation, we're not responsible. And God isn't blamed that the Holy Spirit didn't protect this building after we were all gone. You know, we have to think through some of those things. It's not the building, it's people. So uh, can the building be used for entertainment or social gatherings? 
money-raising schemes or church party? Um, or is it mainly set aside for the glorifying of God and of spiritual worship? I think so. When we come to the church, we expect to have quiet, peaceful situations. We expect to hear something spiritual to encourage our life for the next week. So when we're at spiritual side of things is what you would expect to happen. But it's not because of the building itself. It's because who's here. Um, yeah, so the new building at uh, Dover Camp is called the General or All-Purpose Building. <laughs> so if they did need to do something different in there, um, it uh, would be done in a manner, spiritual-type manner, for church-type situations and planning, but it's not because it's only. Okay. General purpose would be a good sound. So in our universal scope of um, finding people for the Lord, a worldwide scope, reaching out to people of all nations and nationalities, um, that we can teach them to love the Lord. In uh, John 3, if you'll go with me there to John chapter 3, I want to read a little bit there. John chapter 3 and verse 17. This is our universal, yes, I want to talk about for everyone. For God so loved the world, he didn't love the ones that just loved him, just the Hebrew people, just those that could be convinced early on. He loved the world, whether they were good, bad, or indifferent. He loved people. Loved the world that, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the Heavenly Father's goal, is to save people. Didn't say what nationality or what mannerisms they have to start with. All nationalities are acceptable and allowed uh, into the kingdom of God and into his love and to be saved. Okay, and... Uh, Christ also loved the church, it says in uh, Ephesians 5.25, that he loved the world, loved the church. The church wouldn't have barriers like countries' um, borders. Uh, the, the church isn't worried about borders. The church is not worried about what the country teaches or believes in that country. Again, you're after the souls of the people that are there. If they come to learn this scripture from the Heavenly Father and learn to love it and love this God that we know of, it doesn't matter what nationality they are or what borders are around. There is no borders. That's a very interesting thought when you realize you can go anywhere in the world and actually, if you find people that love this Bible, love this God, and teach these things of the New Testament, for instance, uh, you find out you've got a lot of things in common. Even though the name of their country is very different. Okay. Um, so going on with th this idea, 
John 3.21, we're here at John right now, 3 verse 21. But he that doeth, that, pardon me, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that, it, that his deeds may be made manifested, that they are wrought in God. The other verses ahead of this too, you're taking somebody that finds out about light, finds out about truth, and they'll come to the Heavenly Father because of that truth, because of that light, they'll come to him, and their deeds, good or bad, are going to show up in that light of the Heavenly Father. And if they've done good things, you'll have, they, they will be made manifested and that, that they are wrought in God. If they've done it for, the God, for their God, for their uh, Heavenly Father, it'll show up. So truth is a big thing. That's why it starts off there. The, what is it? The fifth word is truth. We need to be concerned about truth. Uh, another thought here too is that, that the person will come to the light and that's going to be the, the big approach to having people come. So if we go to Matthew 15, Matthew 15 verse 9, 15 verse 9, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. There is a problem. That people may come from various backgrounds, but are they teaching the scriptural teachings or are they teaching doctrines that Jesus would condemn? That they're not doing what the Heavenly Father wants them to do. And then also in Mark chapter 7, Mark 7, 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 7. Albeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Same idea. So there are doctrines out there that God does not like and doesn't appreciate. And we're not supposed to teach them or even understand them, but we have to know enough not to be in those things. You have to find out what is truth and what is untruth, what is righteousness, which is unrighteousness, Stay away from the bad stuff. So there will be um, doctrines. There will be teachings. There will be commandments of God. Right? And that's what we need to find out what, what God would like to have. Revival in the church will bring the church to a really new and enjoyable place to be. It will... Um, uh, really work out wonderful for everyone that attends. And uh, we are to nourish and cherish the church. Back there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. So in the Ephesians 5, you want to read more in there and find out what it's got to say about this uh, changes, the spiritual life. Uh, many churches uh, have a spiritual lukewarmness they teach the bare bones ideas and people flock to them because it's all smiles. It's a certain dignitary of the person. It's the pomp and ceremony of the service, uh, the flowers and the lights and, you know, uh, and that brings people. 
but they're there for really the wrong reason because they can be very lukewarm and hide amongst the multitudes. They don't have to be involved themselves. So uh, where's to uh, not be lukewarm? And how would I... There's probably a lot of verses, but the one that popped in my head right away is Revelations chapter um, 3. Revelation chapter 3. And this is the seventh church that we're going to read here for just a bit. Revelations 3, top with verse 14, to start with. Verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Oh, who was the beginning? What was the beginning? That's going to be able to talk to us? That's Jesus Christ. Oh, so all of these, all of these churches, all of these seven, Jesus was talking to them. So here he's saying it again, and he was the beginning of God's creation, creation of God. Uh, we don't know when that was. It was a long time before the earth came into existence. And yet God said to somebody, why don't we make man in our image? Ah, he was there before he, that statement was made. <laughs> okay, so here we go again. Verse 15, I know thy works. This is Jesus talking to the church and saying, you're in trouble. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, that's a, not a good idea, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. They don't know their situation that they're really at, and they're thinking, oh, I can get along all right. And verse 19, he says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. It's not the first words of the, of the verse. It's the last words of the, of the verse. Be zealous. Don't be lukewarm. And therefore, repent to get out of that lukewarmness and get yourself on, on a good road with the Heavenly Father. Okay. Um, churches should be fervent in spirit, alive unto God, spiritually well-fed. We need teachers, we need preachers, we need lessons, we need this, we need that in order to be well-fed spiritually and nourished in the faith. Verses on each of those words, you can look them up. So the word doctrine is going to pop up every so often because that's a standard that people go by. And the word truth is going to show up more than you'd guess. The truth is going to show up. We talk about full gospel, nothing missing. And we got to make it that way. <laughs> Don't expect somebody else to do it for us. We need to make sure that, that we know what it ought to be. I wanted to look in uh, 2 Timothy and chapter 3. So let's go to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy. Second Timothy 
and chapter 3 and verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Uh, if you read those first four verses, it'll tell you what really was going on and what you need to stay away from. Unholy things going on. Uh, just, yeah, it uses the word unholy. Uh, look those things up and read them and just say, wow, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God? That's lukewarm, that's for sure, if not a little further. But these places of establishment are called a church, but they have a form of godliness. And it's really a surprise when, you, when we went through that idea of uh, documenting our own church and getting um, the paperwork through various departments of federal and state and so on and organizing as a church, we found out that people were organizing a church with a pastor that might have read a few chapters of the New Testament. Don't worry about the Old Testament. And they were letting them be, be pastors. They were ordaining them. Uh, no, this was a terrible situation. Then we looked at some of their doctrinal beliefs and Wow, about anything went. My goodness. Then you realize it should be a whole lot better than that. So for this church, we said, okay, first off, you've got to be a member. And there's a study system to become a member. It could take a year. It could take a month if somebody really worked at it fast. But then you've got to be a member for a year before you can hold other offices. Okay, that makes good sense because we have people that pop in and have really strange background and really strange ideas and you better not get them teaching others. Okay. Um, and then if you want to move up from there, you become a board member, a deacon, elder, whatever, you get, get a position on the board, something you're moving up, but you'd like to be a pastor, like to be a preacher, doing similar things in the same building or a different building in the same city or a different city, you have to read the entire Bible five times besides answering questions to other things. The IRS doesn't tell you what those questions are, so we can make them any, any size we want, but we want to make sure that that person's on the right track. And reading the Bible through five times might take five years. You could do it in a lot less than that because one family in, in uh, Washington State said uh, we had a chart on the wall and you could tick off the books of the Bible that you read. And he said, uh, what, what do we do? We read through the Bible five times per year. Not once a year, but five times in a year. Oh, okay. So we made a special deal with them. <laughs> Uh, they could put in as much as they want and not tell the rest <laughs> if they didn't want people to know how often they were reading through the Bible. But that is really, really neat to know the scriptures. Uh, yes, okay. Going on down. Uh, the church should be founded on the and centered on the highway of God, Heavenly Father. Because in, uh, turn with me to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. In this 
Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, and verse 13 and 14. This is a whole paragraph, complete thought. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Oh, there must be other ways that are crooked. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Don't be like that. Do you remember Jesus saying, don't, uh, don't act like the Pharisees, do what they say, but don't do as they act? <laughs> okay, this is kind of that idea. Verse 14, because straight is the gate. Most people don't want straight stuff, and uh, you got too many rules. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, God has rules. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth to life. Few there be that find it. If you listen to many of the broadcasts on radio, you'd think there's going to be millions finding it. When Jesus comes, there's going to be billions of people waiting to meet Jesus. When the Bible says, when Jesus comes, will he find faith? Interesting. I mean, all the people from here back, there's going to be a lot of people coming out of the ground and those that are alive and so on to meet Jesus. But there may only be a very few actually right here alive serving God properly when Jesus comes. Otherwise, that statement wouldn't be in the Bible. Okay, carrying on. The... Um, we need to have this consistent way of doing things, not wavering, not being shaky, uh, have a firm foundation like Jesus. And it right away ran into my head about the wise man that built his house upon a rock and the winds came and the storms came <laughs> and it, nothing happened to it, it stood. The one that built on shabby stuff and on the sands, it collapsed. You might want to read that, find that story and read it. Then there's a time when the heavens are going to open. Some say the clouds will roll back or the sky will roll back or it'll open. Different words are used. But uh, that's okay because we read about uh, times when there's going to be a white horse coming and somebody riding that horse that's got signs down his thighs. Maybe one side is one thing, one the other. Lord of lords, king of kings. That's what we read about, and the sky's going to open. Something's going to happen when he comes. We also find in Ephesians 5.27 that he might present himself, present it to himself. He's going to present his church to himself. That really got me going with uh, uh, the, well, I, I even wrote down these verses. I got on the computer and looked them up. Uh, yes, these here. This is what was preached to me as a kid. Ephesians 5.27, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. We got that preached at us. Whether we were going roller skating or... <laughs> yes, we had to behave ourselves. In fact... Um, in Ecclesiastes, it says, young man, go and have a good time, but remember there's a judgment coming. <laughs> we got it. We understood. First uh, Timothy 6 and verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, 
unto the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Keep this commandment. You might want to find out what that is. <laughs> okay. But at least we know that it's the scripture and, and scripture of things uh, that we need to be uh, in that uh, situation when Jesus comes. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus can do that. He can purge us. He can cleanse us. 1 Peter 1 and verse 19, But the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus could do it. He did it. We should be able to as well. He's our example. We should be that, that way, that pure. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 24, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in of him in peace, without spot and blameless. It's a possibility. We're told to do it. God doesn't ask us to do things that would be impossible to do. This page. Uh, it tells us that if we are looking for Christ, there's a, a verse that's always read at funerals. It's First Thessalonians chapter 4, and then there's quite a few verses that are usually read. It says Jesus is going to come, that he will come. He's going to return for his people. Some are going to be coming from the grave. Some are going to be still alive. One won't get ahead of the other. That's kind of the story that's there. The little piece that I need and I really want, so shall we ever be with the Lord. If we do it right, we act right, live right, act right, you know, live our, our faith and, and be diligent about our faith and about the task of spreading the gospel, winning souls and teaching. If we do those things as he would have us to do, we will be in his blessings and we shall uh, be with the Lord. We don't have to know exactly where. Some of the verses I've got written on the side over here is that uh, it says when, the, uh, when Jesus returns that his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives and it's going to divide. That's from Zechariah. I don't think I wrote that down, but I know where it is if I wanted to go there. Uh, Zechariah 14, I believe it is. Um, but we need to read in Matthew 24, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Acts 1, verse 9 through 11, uh, Mark as well in another place, and Revelations 1, verse 7. He's coming back. He is going to come. That's the whole story. We need to be ready to meet him. Do whatever it takes in our personal life. That'll affect the church. The church will affect the community, which will affect the state, and which will affect the country. We've got to do it right, because it's affecting an awful lot of people. And we want the eternal life at the end. May God bless you.